I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey everyone, Madigan here. I am so excited to share an episode with you that I had initially put up on Patreon that I put so, so, so much work into. I put weeks of work into preparation for this episode, and I cannot wait to share it with my broader audience. But here is just a great example of some of the things that I put up on my Patreon. So if you want to donate to the show and also get a little bit of content in return, you can go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. And this episode was in the $5 level, which is currently the Angry Feminist Book Club. And starting in January 2024 will be Mad Gabin with Madigan, a sort of advice or question and answer segment, which I'm very, very excited about. But I also have an $8 feminist faves level, which gives you all of the angry feminist book club content. Plus, you get these episodes ad free, You usually get them a little bit early. And I am starting to do recaps of the episodes that are on the main feed, such as this one that will be up on Patreon the same day that 
that the episode is released where I talk about the making of the episode. Maybe I'll add some information that I didn't add when I initially recorded the episode, some things I forgot, so on and so forth. It'll be a nice little closing of whatever that week's topic was. And like I said, all of that is at patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist, but you can also just simply click the link in the show notes to get there much quicker. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. India and I actually interviewed both the filmmaker for this documentary, Mia Donovan, and also one of the people that were the subjects of the documentary, Juan Cortez. And it really added another layer to this film since I had watched it. And then watching it again in preparation for this episode and really doing some extra research and Googling and finding old archived newspaper articles and things like that was so beneficial. And I reached out to Mia, the filmmaker, to let her know that I was going to be releasing this episode. And I just thanked her again so much for bringing this film into the world and bringing this story into the public consciousness because it is a part of the civil rights history that I was not as well versed in and I think that it's still really important to talk about today especially because it has to do with substance abuse disorder and the way that the war on drugs had affected people of color so on and so forth it's a very very amazing documentary an incredible story and I'm so glad that I got to go even deeper into all of that during my research for this episode and in this episode I do include a couple of clips from our interview with Juan Cortez And I believe just one clip with Mia, but maybe in the recap, I will chat a little bit more about my conversations that I had with the both of them because it was absolutely fantastic. And if you want to hear those full interviews, you can listen to my other show, Still Learning the Podcast, which is hosted by my friend India Oxenberg, but you still hear me every once in a while and listen to those episodes there. All right. I really, really hope you all enjoy and I'll say goodbye at the end. The documentary opens in the year 1969 in the South Bronx, New York City. At the time, the heroin epidemic was raging, particularly in lower-class communities, due to the situations and environments they were exposed to. Following World War II, heroin use increased throughout the country, and much of the drug's distribution was centered in New York City, more specifically, Harlem. In 1964, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics reported that there was an estimated 48,525, quote, active addicts in the country, and half of them were residing in New York City. It was considered the dope capital of the nation. But why Harlem? According to author Eric Schneider of Smack, Heroin, and the American City, marginalized communities such as Harlem became hubs for distribution due to their environment, which was severely lacking in resources. There were issues in housing, schools, jobs, and other public resources, which just perpetuated the demand and increased the supply from foreign producers. In some respect, the drug trade brought economic opportunities that would otherwise be unavailable to the people of Harlem. And that's what's so unfortunate is we look upon 
people who have made certain decisions in their lives as to how they are making money. And it's so easy to be judgmental of them without thinking about their circumstances and what is available for them to be able to overcome those circumstances. And in Harlem, in New York City during this time, Black people were certainly not going to be given the same level of opportunity as white people would when it comes to being successful financially. So people in more impoverished communities would turn to things like survival sex work and drug trade in order to survive and support their families. There's one other thing that I learned in my subsequent research outside of watching the documentary, and that was that in 1962, New York passed the Metcalf-Volker Act, which allowed drug users that were arrested on minor offenses to undergo treatment at a state hospital rather than serve time in prison. After they completed this program, the offenders were supported with an aftercare program. If this was all successfully completed, they would then have the arrest expunged from their records. And this all sounds pretty fantastic. However, the belief in rehabilitation soon began to disintegrate. By 1965, Governor Rockefeller had already called the Metcalf-Bokler Act a failure, citing an inability to cure addiction. He also complained of the expenses made for rehabilitation. Can you imagine if we had just continued that line of behavior when it comes to treating our prisoners for drug offenses a little bit better? Can you imagine what the prison system today would look like? It'd be totally different. Reports of a rising crime rate combined with the hatred and division occurring within the civil rights movement became the bedrock of the, quote, law and order Republican platform. In 1966, Rockefeller called for tougher treatment for those who had drug offenses, He declared an all-out war on crime and narcotics addiction, adding, This is a war, and every addict should be enlisted in the battle with himself and the drug that imprisons him. He tied addiction to crime together by saying, Narcotic addicts are responsible for one half of the crimes committed in New York City alone. Rockefeller also narrowed his scope to Harlem specifically. That year, he passed the Narcotics Addiction Rehabilitation Act, or NARC. How ironic. This was a punitive turn targeted at Black and Puerto Rican drug dealers. Black heroin victims were viewed as criminals and as a product of their circumstances. This is all background when we open up the film. The next thing the documentary gets into is the Black Panther Party. We know that one of the primary activities in the Black Panther Party were their community programs, such as free breakfast and lunch programs, free clothing drives, and free daycare programs. By the end of 1969, there were over 30 Black Panther Party chapters in the United States. One of the people we meet in the documentary is a woman named Cleo Silvers, who was a mental health worker at Lincoln Hospital located in the South Bronx, as well as a member of the Black Panther Party. She talked about how she would stand outside the hospital after work, handing out Black Panther pamphlets and booklets. While doing so, she noticed the amount of people around her who were hopelessly addicted. Here's a quote from Cleo. A lot of people walking back and forth, and on the stoop every day was this 15-year-old and his buddy, who was about 25 maybe, and they were stomped down heroin addicts. And I kept telling them, you know, you don't want to be addicted to heroin, and let me show you why. Because the system is keeping you, I gave them the whole spiel. 
system is keeping you down by making sure that you stay addicted and you don't stand up and fight against all the exploitation and, and horrible conditions that we live in because you're over here nodding out. You don't want to fight when you're At the end of that clip was Felipe Luciano, a member of the Young Lords and the Last Poets. He was one of the founders of the Young Lords, and he tells a story about how they originally talked about calling the group the Brown Tigers, but that Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers encouraged them to find their own thing that's meaningful to them. The Young Lords originated in Chicago, and the official leader of the initial group was Jose Chacha Jimenez. They modeled their activism off the Black Panthers, and quickly, chapters of the Young Lords began to pop up all over the place, including New York City. Well, the Young Lords are a predominantly Puerto Rican group operating out of East Harlem. Basically, the way we go about mobilizing our people is through serving their needs. That is, if our people need hot water, then we're going to get hot water. If it's shoes on their feet, then we're going to give them shoes. Right? And if it's a political campaign that needs, that needs to be run, then we're going to run political campaigns. That's basically what the Young Lords are about. Both the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords saw the need in attacking the drug epidemic and saw how the government was manipulating impoverished people of color and keeping them addicted and compliant. The first thing they did, which I found kind of funny, was go to the people distributing the drugs and ask them to stop. Honeys, you knew that wasn't going to work. When the group would get their hands on some drugs, though, they would make a scene by pouring it into the street drains. I find that so sweet, though. They're like, okay, let's just go and ask them nicely to stop distributing these drugs. And they're like, fuck, no, this is my livelihood. Since this epidemic was seen as a problem only affecting the poor and people of color, it wasn't seen as a big problem to the government or to the people. We were taught to have a lack of sympathy for drug users and see them as criminals. So why would we help them? It didn't hit the low middle class or middle class neighborhoods. It was in. It was clearly in in the in the areas of color. If it isn't large enough to to get to the influential community, if it isn't a big media story, if it doesn't affect your kid going to school every day because you're in Forest Hills or you're in Bay Ridge, you're in some middle-class neighborhood. It's not a big problem. The first big event we see occurring in the film was the takeover of Lincoln Hospital by the Young Lords. This occurred on the early morning of July 14th, 1970, when the group made their way into the hospital, hiding in a U-Haul truck and barricaded themselves inside. They explain it being kind of like a Trojan horse situation. 150 people, mostly young lords, claimed the hospital as their own, hanging a banner over the side of the building that read, Welcome to the People's Hospital and Bienvenidos al Hospital del Pueblo. Here's a clip of Young Lords member Iris Morales speaking over a megaphone during the takeover. Today we don't want to just have rabbit here. We're going to go marching to the streets of the South Bronx. We're going to tell the people of the South Bronx that we're not going anywhere, that we're going to be here until this hospital learns and it's put back in the hands of the people. That building was condemned 25 years ago. Condemned because it was unsafe for human habitation. Condemned for rich people and opened up for poor people. That's what always happens. 
This occupation would go on for 12 hours as they stood in protest against the hospital's poor conditions for both the patients and the people who worked there. Some of their demands included an increased minimum wage for the workers, funds to build a new hospital building, and a daycare center for patients and staff. It had been well known at the time that Lincoln Hospital was not giving their patients adequate care. Young Lords member Gloria Cruz said, Lincoln Hospital is only a butcher shop that kills patients and frustrates workers from serving these patients. This is because Lincoln exists under a capitalist system that only looks for profit. But even this system made an effort at scrapping this butcher shop by condemning this building 25 years ago. Yeah, this building was not in great shape, and it really didn't seem like the hospital workers and the people in charge really cared about helping the patients that were there, who were mostly people of color and those who were in poverty. In the film, Cleo talks about setting up a little complaint jar and how that was filled up, and even then, they refused to do anything to help improve the hospital. The building was originally built to be a nursing home for the elderly formerly enslaved population in 1839, so it didn't get off to a great start. It was condemned in the 1940s due to its physical condition, so this whole hospital has a really shitty history, and it had been condemned for so long, I'm surprised they could still bring patients inside. And this dilapidated hospital was the only one available to people in the area, as two other hospitals had already been shut down in the previous 10 years. Lincoln Hospital in the 1970s was the only hospital responsible for the care of over 400,000 residents, and it was failing spectacularly. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. 
Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. During the takeover, they spent 12 hours in negotiations with the city, hospital staff, and leaders of the Young Lords, and they finally reached an agreement. This brought an end to the hospital takeover, and the Young Lords were given permission to run certain community programs within the hospital, with the aid of hospital staff and administration. To escape punishment, many of the Young Lords members slipped out of the hospital donned in white doctor's coats and medical scrubs to go undetected. After this was achieved, the Young Lords and the Black Panther Party began the Lincoln Detox Center program, initially called the People's Hospital. Besides starting the Lincoln Detox Center, the actions at Lincoln Hospital led to one of the first patients' Bill of Rights in history, the first recorded public medical trial after an incident of malpractice, and the eventual construction of a brand new hospital. Much in line with how the Black Panther Party ran things, they offered political education courses at the hospital as well, learning about their addiction in a more communist context, exploring how their addiction has harmed themselves, their family, and their community. Addiction was tied to politics. The day they opened their center, hundreds of people showed up for help. Another talking head we meet in this documentary is a Young Lords member named Walter, the guy with the white baseball cap, and he talks about how he had been in nursing school when he became interested in the program. He started to volunteer at the clinic, quickly moving up the ranks to taking blood due to his nursing experience. When the clinic first opened, most of the doctors were white, so Walter was one of the first to start to make that change. He also worked as a translator in the clinic to bridge the gap between the Spanish-speaking patients and the white doctors. They had a medical director, but they also wanted someone to direct the clinic who had a more revolutionary consciousness. This is when we meet Dr. Matulu Shakur in the documentary. Dr. Shakur became politically active as a teenager when he joined the Revolutionary Action Movement, or RAM, and later joined the Republic of New Africa. He was a great organizer and got involved in helping political education initiatives in New York City and contributed to the Black Panther Party, though he was not a formal member of the party. He was also active in the Black Liberation Army. In 1975, Dr. Shakur married Afeni Shakur, a member of the Black Panther Party and mother of future rap legend Tupac Shakur. Afeni was also one of the Panther 21, a group of Black Panther members who were accused of planning to bomb multiple locations in New York City. They were all acquitted after two years in jail, and Afeni was just 24 years old when she got out. She gave birth to Tupac a month later. The couple also had another daughter, Sekiwa. Dr. Shakur had four other children as well, Moprim, Nzinga, 
and Aiz. Dr. Shakur and Afeni divorced in 1982. This is jumping ahead to the end, but there was a great clip in the documentary where Dr. Shakur was talking about what his kids' lives were like growing up with them as parents and what kind of pressure and hardships they went through. Our children who were targeted and harassed, who were followed, who were, you know, put in fearful situations because, like myself, I was clandestine for many years and on the run. And so my daughter and my sons were always followed and, and, and you know, they would go into their schools. And so they knew the reality of what this is. Uh, Tupac wasn't angry just to be angry. I think his mother's life as a, as a member of the Panther 21 and the Panther situation, his growing up in Lincoln Hospital with us, you know, and that whole struggle with the Republic. He grew up around dope fiends all his life, you know. He grew up in, in, in you know, in the, in the tension of what we were going through with these various counterintelligence operations. In a better world, we could have done better with that anger in a better world, in a better circumstances. But I think he did the best that he could. Dr. Shakur helped to run a lot of the political education courses, and in them, they began thinking more about who they were and their roots. They thought of the names they carried as their quote-unquote slave names, and many people decided to change their name to something that more accurately portrayed who they were. On top of all of that mentality change, the patient's physical health was also rapidly improving. The reason that it's so difficult for people to get clean and stay sober is because of how painful it is to get off drugs. I don't know if you've ever seen a, um, a drug addict detox, but it is horrible. They have chills, they're sick, they're cold sometimes, they're hot sometimes. It is really, really, it's a horrible. I, that's why people don't want to get off of drugs, because it's such a, a horrible experience, you know, the, the, the actual body detoxing. The war on drugs began when Richard Nixon gave a press conference on June 18, 1971, during which he declared drug abuse public enemy number one. Nixon went after black street crime and was pressured to show evidence of what he was doing to stop it. So he opened methadone clinics. The way he saw it, the more people were on methadone, the lower the crime rates would be. Methadone wasn't a new drug in 1970. It was first brought to the United States from Germany, where it originated, in 1947. It was used as a substitute for morphine for Nazi Germany during World War II. Yikes. The drug has slowly become more commonly used throughout the 60s, but it was new to use as a maintenance drug for those addicted to heroin. Those trying to get off heroin would show up to these clinics once a day for their dose of methadone to be maintained, not detoxed, off the drug. And the word maintain really stood out to me because it really seems like Nixon and the American government wanted to put the addicted black population in a stupor so they could be more easily manipulated and controlled. It's sickening. Here's a quick lesson about the drug methadone itself. Like I said, it's a synthetic opioid and the side effects are similar to that of other opioids. The risks include dizziness, sleepiness, vomiting, and sweating. And the more serious risks include respiratory depression and, ironically, 
opioid abuse. What's methadone doing for you? Is it helping you? Getting me high, getting me high, that's all. People began to see how the use of methadone was just replacing one addiction with another. And the Lincoln Detox Center decided they needed to find a replacement for methadone, something more holistic and healing, something more permanent and less damaging. Dr. Shakur saw an article in the paper where they were interviewing an acupuncturist and saw how it had been used to treat people with respiratory problems. These people with the respiratory problems also happened to be addicted. And they found that by stimulating the lung point located in the ear, you help the respiratory problem, but you also relieve the withdrawal symptoms. Dr. Shakur brought this idea to the group. They sent people to China and worked with that guy from Canada from the Acupuncture Institute of Montreal, whose son we see in the film, to really study the art of acupuncture from the best. Many of the people who went through these programs would go on to start their own programs, and more and more clinics began to pop up. Some of the other benefits of acupuncture they discovered are, according to the NADA website, reduced cravings for alcohol and drugs, including nicotine, minimized withdrawal symptoms, increased calmness, better sleep, and less agitation, relief from stress and emotional trauma, an easier connection with counseling, and a discovery of inner quiet and strength. That's something that I think makes this process different than any other drug detoxifying clinic or rehab out there because it truly is giving a very holistic approach to healing from your addiction. And I feel like the reasons that people decide to go on drugs in the first place is probably what needs to be addressed in order for someone to work through their addiction. Because if I'm going to relay it to something that I know from myself, my eating disorder was just a symptom of a lot of other things that were going on with me that hadn't been addressed. And by addressing those things and working on my eating disorder at the same time, I was able to fully recover instead of just working on feeding me and getting me bigger and then letting me go back out into the world. It was about making sure that I was in the best place possible to receive counseling and care and trying a variety of things to ensure my future success so I wouldn't have to rely on those really terrible coping mechanisms anymore. The vibe of these clinics are very calming. They got some comfy chairs, some massage tables, they lit a few candles and played calming music. Then they would invite the people in and place needles in the five specific points of the ear, causing further relaxation and relief from withdrawal symptoms. It's pretty amazing. Here's Dr. Shakur talking about the clinic. When the uh, uh, patients or victims would come up, we would say, well, listen, we're not going to give you no methadone today, but what we're going to do is massage your feet, we massage your back, and we massage your ears. And what we would use, we're going to use our finger. And so before we even got needles, we would, people would come up to the Bronx, dope fiends, hardened dope victims. We would massage their ears and massage their hands and their legs. And we would stand there with our fingers in their ears or in the different points. And we'd do deep breathing and they'd fall right out to sleep and just relax. And then the next day they'd be back for that treatment. And we would detail 
detoxifying people off of heroin and cocaine and methadone with acupressure, a lot of love, a lot of commitment to it. And it was some of the most rewarding times of our lives, you know. And it was it was just great. It was just great. It was spirited. And we then began to get the needles and learn needle insertions and how to deal with a very the way that Dr. Shakur spoke of the clinic in this clip really reminds me of part of the interview that India and I had with Juan, where he refers to it being like a spa. We have a beautiful clinic here where we provide a variety of different holistic services for free. Uh, it looks like a spa, and we wanted to do that intentionally. We mm. believe that these, these healing modalities shouldn't be just limited to people who have money. Uh, we believe that everyone has the right to health and wellness. So we wanted to create this beautiful space in East Harlem. And we've accomplished that. Our goal is to get a space like this in every single town and every single city. In the, actually, in the world, if I could... If I could I think you should One of the things I love about this practice is that it's handed down from generation to generation, and we see the teachers teaching young kids how to apply acupuncture to the proper parts of the ear. It's still such a grassroots movement, and it's so beautiful. By 1973, they were busy. More and more people had heard about the clinic, and people were flocking there for help. It's at this point in the documentary that we're finally introduced to Juan Cortez who you just heard from in his interview with India and I from Still Learning. Here's what he says in the documentary. I was uh, a drug user for many, many years. I was in and out of jail. I was um, on the streets uh, with the whole, the whole Shabazz thing that comes with it, with the violence, with the suffering, with the pain. It wasn't until actually one day walked through 138th Street over there in 3rd Avenue, and I was walking, and I somehow came across this building that I seen people going in there and I asked what that was. And they told me, well, this is a Lincoln Recovery Center. It's actually a program. And I was like, you know what? I desperately need a program right now in my life. And I walked in there and I was, you know, exposed to acupuncture and to, um, that was my first real taste of holistic health. It was actually great that I was receiving acupuncture treatments every day, sometimes twice a day. And then I decided to get off methadone. I was on methadone for 15 years. And um, it was acupuncture uh, and learning about Tai Chi and Qigong and how to do deep breathing and also being surrounded by people who supported me and um, that I was able to change my life. If you go straight down, so. Juan is a licensed not a trainer as well and works hard to teach the next generation the craft of acupuncture to keep the movement alive. Their movement had become incredibly successful and for this, they began to get attention. Soon, the U.S. government began to grow suspicious of the clinic created by the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. Doctors from the clinic began to be attacked in the press, being called Marxists and communists. And then there was Dr. Richard Taft. Many people thought Richard was in charge of the clinic, since he was one of the only white guys who worked there. On October 29, 1974, Dr. Richard Taft was found dead in the storage closet in the back of the auditorium of the Lincoln Detox Center. From an article written by a leftist publication at the time, those who worked with Taft at the clinic said they believed Richie had been killed. The article stated, 
An empty syringe was found, along with a medical tourniquet and seven empty glassine bags of the type of street heroin is sold on. However, there were no matches, no cooker cuts to the room. Both doors of the storage closet were found ajar. These doors were always kept locked. Apparently, the coroner's officer reported no needle marks or heroin in his urine, but they did find heroin in his tissues. The article goes into the evidence as to why they do not believe this was a suicide and also describes an incident from two months prior where Richard was shot by unknown assailants. Richard had been carrying a weapon with him since then for his own protection. He had also told a fellow employee at the detox center as recently as a week before his death that he was in fear of his life and wanted to take a leave of absence. On the day he died, he was supposed to meet with a high-ranking Washington official regarding funding for the Lincoln Detox Center. Richard had also been in the media in recent months after a confrontation at the hospital in May of 1974, which led to threatening calls to Richard's home for his participation. And a month before his death, he had also testified on behalf of a Lincoln hospital worker, James Richardson, in the case where a transit policeman was killed. He spoke in his defense, stating that he had been on drugs when he committed the murder and had limited capacity. By 1975, the higher-ups at the hospital wanted to take over the clinic. The hospital began firing people and threatening to shut it down. They eventually went to the hospital corporation with their complaints, and they locked out the employees of the Lincoln Detox Center. Now, you know the Young Lords and the Black Panthers had to fight back. From an article at the time, it says, More than 50 demonstrators smashed windows, wrecked furniture, and occupied the fifth floor offices of the Health and Hospitals Corporation at 125 Worth Street yesterday to protest the agency's attempt to fire three employees in a drug detoxification program, a corporation spokesperson reported. They eventually sat down and negotiated. This would go on through the night, and by sunrise, they all left peacefully. The workers of the Lincoln Detox Center were thankfully able to delay their firings. With all of this growing attention on the clinic, more and more attention was being brought on to Dr. Matulu Shakur. Cointel Pro started in 1968. And as is stated in the doc, it was a covert FBI program designed to target African-American, Puerto Rican, and new left activists and community organizers. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover ordered agents to expose, disrupt, discredit, and otherwise neutralize the activities of these movements and their leaders. One of the other people we meet at this point in the documentary is a woman named Susan Rosenberg, who I was just fascinated by. Susan was a member of a group called the May 19th Communist Order, which was a female-led clandestine group who supported the Black Liberation Army, in which Dr. Shakur was a member, and another group called the Weather Underground. But according to the U.S. government's website, they were a group that, quote, openly advocated for the overthrow of the U.S. government through armed struggle and the use of violence. I'll be back to the May 19th Communist Order in a little bit. In 1978, Mayor Ed Cox sent riot police from the NYPD to the entrance of the clinic and put a padlock on it, effectively closing the clinic. He accused Lincoln Detox of harboring leftist radicals, 
and once declared, hospitals are for sick people, not for thugs. I don't know about anyone else, but the word thug is such a heavy word to me. I just, ugh, I don't like it. I don't like when people use that word. I just think it's really ugly. I remember when when Koch uh, actually uh, sent the riot police to um, the entranceway of our clinic. We went to go to work and there were padlocks. And so we didn't know what was going on. Once the people's program was closed, the people who worked there splintered off and began doing their own thing. It became a private enterprise, which drastically changed the funding available to them. The program at Lincoln Hospital was taken over by a guy named Michael Smith, and the political education classes effectively ended. Corporate doctors at that time saw everything that we were doing as a threat. Because what we were saying is, and the other the thing that's so important is that we were calling a free quality health care for all. That was the bottom line for all of this, that we demanded free quality health care for all. That was the first call for free health care, which is now the, everybody's talking about it's a big deal. But that was the first time in the 1960s and early 70s. And it came from that same group of people. Dr. Shakur became licensed and certified to practice acupuncture in California after studying there in 1979. After that, he helped found and direct the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of North America, or BANA, and the Harlem Institute of Acupuncture. They moved into a building at East 140th Street. Dr. Barbara Zeller was hired to become the medical advisor to BANA, and McKinney Shakur, Dr. Shakur's wife, became the administrative director. They then created the NADA Protocol, which, according to their website, involves the gentle placement of up to five small, sterilized, disposable needles into specific sites on the ear. The recipient sits quietly in a group setting for 30 to 45 minutes, allowing the treatment to take effect. Due to the five points that the needles are placed, they initially called this the five-point approach. The combined application of acupuncture with counseling, education, medical support, and self-help groups such as AA and NA enhances opportunities for success. Their website also mentions the fact that the acronym NADA is also the Spanish word for nothing, and they say no nonsense, nonverbal, no drugs, no barriers. To this day, they are a nonprofit training and advocacy organization, and it was all rooted in Lincoln Detox and Bana. The 80s would bring even more struggles for Dr. Shakur and others involved with Bana, though. On all the levels that he was dealing with, politically, socially, uh, medically, etc., that when they looked at him, they see the problem, this guy here, he's got too much influence in too many areas. He's potentially a leader. We need to get rid of him. Then we get a title card on the screen, which reads, On October 20th, 1981, a Brinks armored truck robbery in Nanuet, New York, left two police officers and a guard dead. A group of people from the BLA robbed an armored Brinks truck in Nanuet, New York, where they allegedly stole $1.6 million in cash. In all the action, the guard of the truck, Peter Page, was killed, and another person, Joseph Trombino, was seriously injured. Sadly, he would die in the 9-11 terrorist attacks years later. When the cops stopped the getaway car, officers Edward O'Grady and Waverly Brown were killed. 
The Joint Terrorism Task Force declared that the perpetrators were linked to the network of left-wing radical groups. Dr. Shakur was assumed to have been at the robbery and murders, as he was the leader of the group, and this fact is still disputed. I do think it's important to state, though, that the people close to Dr. Shakur say that he wasn't present, and there's absolutely no evidence to support that he ever killed anybody. He then went underground and would evade capture for five years. He even made it to number 380 on the FBI's most wanted list. He was eventually arrested in California in 1986 by the FBI. He was put on trial and received a 60-year sentence. He was convicted on RICO charges. They charged me with six armored truck robberies, the liberation of a cybership call, using illegally gained funds to finance camp for black children in Mississippi and to put a acupuncture clinic in Harlem, a part of the so-called enterprise I was accused of financing with illegally gained funds. He and others were also under suspicion of having been part of the prison escape of Asada Shakur, who was described as being Tupac's aunt and godmother, to which she is still at large. Asada, where are you at? <laughs> Once incarcerated, Dr. Shakur began to organize inside and provided political education classes and even health care to his fellow inmates and continued to be a human rights activist behind bars. Dr. Shakur's parole was denied at his first review in 2016, and three years later, he applied for a compassionate release due to his declining health. This was initially denied in 2019, but eventually granted in November of 2022. But more on that in a little bit. Susan Rosenberg and other members of M19 Co. went underground due to their assistance of the Black Liberation Army in the robbery, and Susan, after evading arrest for years, was also eventually tracked down and arrested. Although Susan, a white woman, was not eventually charged with the crimes committed in the robbery, but with weapons charges due to the large cash she had with her upon arrest. She would spend 16 years behind bars. So why is it then that Dr. Shakur was held in prison for so long? I'll let you all have a guess. Later, Susan would even be arrested in connection with having a role in a bombing at the U.S. Capitol in 1983. Scary shit, but I still kind of like her. And with that, it seems even more fucked up that Dr. Shakur spent so much more time in prison. Susan's sentence was eventually commuted by none other than President Bill Clinton on his final day in office on January 20th, 2001. She got lucky. Of course, it wasn't just Susan and Dr. Matulu Shakur who would spend time in prison. Many of the people we met in this documentary, along with so many other members of the Young Lords, Black Panthers, May 19th Communist Order, and other left-wing activist groups were imprisoned for various accusations and crimes. But what makes a political prisoner? A political prisoner is someone who is imprisoned for their political activity, though the political offense is not always, in actuality, rarely, the official reason for the prisoner's detention. Other people who have been considered political prisoners are Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. There has never been any evidence that Dr. Shakur killed anyone, 
Yet he was forced to spend most of his life imprisoned instead of continuing to make change out in the world. Thankfully, there are people out there like Juan and the others involved in this movement who continue to pass on the teaching of acupuncture and not only keep the vision alive, but continue to change countless people's lives. In the interview that we did with Juan, he told a story of a straight-laced white couple from the suburbs who showed up at the doorstep of one of his clinics looking for help for their son after nothing else had worked. We see him get emotional at the end of the documentary. He's speaking on what it means to him to have helped so many people. But in doing so, I think he starts to think of himself and his own journey, how he used to be addicted and hurting, and now he's free. When we interviewed him months ago, India asked about their success rate, and his answer was really astounding. He said to us, success is getting someone to walk through the door. So much about healthcare in our country has been commodified, and the prices for patients have become astronomical. So to hear from someone who really cares about the holistic healing of each and every person who comes to them for help is so moving and aspirational. Today, there are approximately 600 programs nationwide who use acupuncture as a method of addiction recovery. NADA has trained over 10,000 healthcare professionals in North America and 25,000 healthcare providers in more than 40 other countries. I didn't decide to add a lot of clips from our interview with Mia, but one of the things that we discussed in the episode was why this documentary was important. I was shocked when she said that before the killing of George Floyd and the 2020 protests, people didn't really know where her film belonged. They felt like it was kind of a historical documentary. And she's like, no, this isn't historical. This is current. This is something that's still happening and needs to be discussed. Dr. Shakur eventually left prison in November of 2022 and passed away just eight months later. And it was so unbelievably hard on his family. I personally do not think that Dr. Shakur deserved that many years in prison. I'm not really even sure that he deserved to go there at all. But I also think I need to know more about the case. So here's that clip of Mia and us discussing what it was like getting that film made and the importance that she wanted it to have on the viewership, so on and so forth. And also, at the end of the documentary, if you watched it on YouTube through the Vice YouTube channel, there is a bit of an interview at the end of that version with Mia as well that I would highly recommend everyone watch and listen to. No, and I think with the before George Floyd and the pandemic, while we were finishing Dope's Death, people festivals were like, well, we don't know where to program this. This is like a historical film. And I was like, it's not historical. It's very Oh my present. God. I it can't believe they said that to you. Yeah, but things changed so much. Like even my producers, they were like, "How? Like this is such a weird film. It's history." And I kept saying, "It's not historical." It's so and all of a sudden, it was so relevant that yeah. no one else could argue that. Oh. So with Dopa's death, I think it was really yeah. It that that's a, uh, for me was a very challenging project, but also I feel that. I learned so much doing that documentary, like my whole framework for reality completely changed my ideology, my understanding of white supremacy and the the government and, you know, like every like it, my whole world is completely shifted 
and refocused. And thanks to Dr. Shakur and all of the activists, all the elders I learned from and getting to know people like Juan Cortez, who's so selfless, who's committed his, dedicated his life to healing people. And, you know, he's a shining example of like how you can change your life around, like mm-hmm. looking at where he came from and the years that he spent battling addiction and how he's just able to rise above it all and heal others. And, you know, so I think that it's that to me, that was the most rewarding experience making that film and being able to contribute to like a more, a truer narrative about Dr. Shakur that is now out there in the world. And that was able to, amongst many other things, I cannot take credit for, you know, Dr. Shakur being finally released, but there is a whole group of people who have been fighting Mm -hmm. and working tirelessly for decades to help him get released. And he was released under, he got a compassionate release after 37 years because he was dying of cancer. And it's so sad, you know, because Dr. Shakur is someone that because he's a political, he was a political prisoner, he had a whole community of people helping him and he had resources, but there's so many people in the American prisons who have no one and who are just, it's like impossible. You know, it's a really messed up system. And so this idea of like the narrative, like what are, who are our so-called criminals, you know, in the U.S.? Like who who are these people? Like they're so, we have to reshift how we label people and stigmatize people. The word addict or mm-hmm. criminal, like all of these things. Like I think these are all the, what, I was hoping, you know, with Dopa's death that we're like kind of reframing. Completely. And placing blame. All right, everyone. That is the episode. Thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to join me on Patreon to give back to the show and also get a little bit of extra content, click that link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist to join the $5 angry feminist book club or the $8 feminist faves level. I cannot wait to see you there. I hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed this episode and I cannot wait to see you next week for another fantastic episode that I am whipping up right now. And along with Patreon, the only other favor that I have for you, nay, let's call this a Christmas present. If you enjoy the show and you haven't yet left a review, I would really, really appreciate you going over to your Apple Podcast app on your iPhone and leaving a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. The Apple Podcast reviews, for some reason, are just incredibly helpful to us podcasters, and it is much appreciated. But I know that a lot of you like to listen on Spotify. So if you want to rate me over there, I'm not going to be mad at you either. Okay, everyone, that is all I have for you today. I hope you all have a fantastic week. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.